American author Wayne Dyer observed that society always seems to honour its living conformists and its dead troublemakers. Well, we reckon it's time to put that standard to the test. Hi, I'm Waistcoat Dave and this is Confessions of a Troublemaker, the podcast from Compassionate Troublemaking. Hey, Compassionate Troublemakers, uh, thank you for joining us for what is now the third week of the podcast. This podcast, this episode, was recorded and is the first one that's been recorded um, in, in quarantine and post-COVID. Um, and I hope that all of you are... It's difficult because you want to say, I hope you're all well, but the reality is some people won't be well or some people will know people that aren't well. So I've kind of been really thinking about how do you include those people? Because this thing, if somebody says, how are you? It's kind of, we're used to saying, oh yeah, yeah I'm okay. But that's not always authentic, or honest. So I guess kind of my hope is, is that even if people, even if you, yourselves listen to this and your family and friends aren't a-okay and aren't a hundred percent, that you're getting the support you need and that there is love and appreciation and connection and kindness and compassion in your day to day. Um, so that's kind of the hope that I'm putting out there. So this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Suzanne Smith from Social Impact Architects. For quite a while now, Suzanne has been, again, similar to, as I've said about um, other other guests, I- inspiring to me. As I mentioned in the podcast, one of my first Medium articles I wrote quite a while ago now was, um, was on her uh, social alchemy framework and for me that really resonated with how i see the world and how i see compassion troublemaking and the work that we can do and we we deep dive into a lot of that and we deep dive into a lot about how do we manage the experiences and the needs within third sector and within um you know the the private sector and within working for local authority and working within local government and what role do politics play into things and what does a way forward look like both in terms of uh, of covid but also outside of covid as well um so it means a hell of a lot um that Susanna agreed to sit down with me and, and have a chat so yeah uh without further ado i'd love to hear what you all think um and i'll talk to you all again afterwards cheers I was wondering how to introduce you, but the thing is, you've got your hands in so many different things. Uh, how, how would you introduce yourself? So I have, I'm a serial social entrepreneur. Uh, two of the companies that I've started, I'm still working on. One is Social Impact Architects. Uh, we just celebrated our 11th anniversary. And actually, yeah. uh, we're working on um, how to improve the social sector. So officially, we kind of have a tagline of accelerating the speed of social change. Um, and then I have another company called Changemaker Interactive, which is really a spinoff of Social Impact Architects. Essentially, um, one of the elements that we do in Social Impact Architects is training. And so I was doing a whole lot of live trainings with folks, helping them with strategic planning, helping them measure their impact, helping them be more entrepreneurial. Two years ago, we really recognized the value of e-learning to the social sector and that there really wasn't a dominant player. So I go through the same pain everybody else does with <laughs> startup, uh, you know, how do I balance a personal and professional life? You know, how do I get investment in the startup? How do I spend time on my day job, which is social impact architects, which makes the money, but still I want to spend time on the startup. Um, 
So I am a social entrepreneur through and through, um, and I've started other socially entrepreneurial ventures, but those were all under someone else's umbrella. So I was a social entrepreneur in those, in those, uh, in those instances. So I do that. I also teach. Um, so I have a class at the University of Texas at Arlington, and then uh, I'll be teaching at Pepperdine and Duke in the fall. Uh, so teach a class on social entrepreneurship for both undergraduate and graduate students. And it's an opportunity for me to kind of take all these concepts and put them into the classroom so that um, these practical ideas that social entrepreneurship brings to the table can be brought to life. And then um, lastly, I, I would call myself kind of an author um, and a thought kind of provoker. Uh, so I have a but blog I've been writing for seven years. Every Thursday it goes out called Social Transpotter. And it's just an opportunity for me to put down on paper um, things that I think are important for people to be paying attention to. So it could be a 101 on what is a strategic plan today. It could be like right now, there's a lot on the US legislation on the CARE Acts of how nonprofits in the social sector can leverage that. It could be also a, a personal blog of like, how do I manage my own productivity? Like how do I keep my spirits up during you know certain times? So it, it's kind of a, a wide range of possibilities, but it comes out every Thursday without fail. So I've been doing that for seven years. And then ultimately we want to turn it into a book. Um, so so I've, been look, I've been thinking through while I've had some downtime over the last couple of weeks, kind of what that book's gonna look like. Uh, every once in a while I dabble into politics. So you probably saw that I ran for office twice. Um, so politics has always been kind of a hobby of mine. Um, and so very involved in the political system, uh, mostly in the United States, but, but kind of follow what's going on uh, globally. I joke with my nephews that I'm very Jeffersonian in that way. So back with in the United States, our founding fathers had lots of different professions. You know, they were yeah. writers, the Declaration of Independence, they were farmers, they were inventors. It really hasn't been until this century where people feel like you have to be one thing. Because mm. people always ask, what do you do versus who are you? Um, and I think there's a real shame in that because it means that you can't wear multiple hats. So I came across your work through Social Impact Architects and through your social alchemy theory, and I actually wrote an article on it uh, entitled More Than Just a Hipster Catchphrase. And the, the thing that resonated with me is what, what we say kind of it's left of centre. You don't kind of think inside the box, you pole vault outside of it. Um, and I'm wondering how much the fact that you're palpably working outside of the norm uh, influences your practice. You know, it's interesting to have you describe it that way. I mean, it's so much of who I am that I don't consider it left to field. You know, I <laughs> yeah. common sense. I came into social entrepreneurship when it was still a relatively new concept. You know, so, so there are, there's a theory about this. There's kind of the first wave of social entrepreneurs, the second wave and the third wave. Uh, and then the fourth wave is coming. And so the first wave were the really the people who came up with the idea of social entrepreneurship. And they really were, it was kind of one of those things like every good idea, they were just sitting around a table, sitting around a campfire and saying, you know what, charity is broken. You know, we still have all these social issues that we're dealing with. And even though we have all this philanthropy and all this goodwill, like it's really, we're really barely making a dent into poverty or the environment or domestic violence, like choose your favorite issue. And you pretty much can, can catalog the fact that we really haven't made that much difference with all this technology globalization, et cetera, we haven't made that much of a dent. I came up with that in 30, 40 years ago, 
and bought, brought in this idea of social entrepreneurship. Like to what degree could we infuse business practices as a toolkit into social entrepreneurship and this idea of, you know, how do we create change better? Mm. Um, so, but it was at a very academic level. Um, and they knew a couple of things. They knew one that most, most of the folks in the charitable space were not approaching the situation correctly. They were very solution focused versus problem focused. You know, so let me give you an example. Uh, a former student of mine, uh, this is prior to her being a student, who basically said, you know what, I you know, taught uh, a class and my kids didn't have enough access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And so I now wanna start a social enterprise that actually um, delivers fresh fruits and vegetables to kids in my community. Very noble cause. Um, but she's presuming what that solution is. And I said, okay, well, there's lots of different ways to distribute fresh fruits or vegetables to individuals. You know, they could, they could, they could get a garden. You know, you could have a farmer's market. Um, you don't necessarily have to, you know, build a van and have that van distribute fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, and then the, and you probably have seen these same articles in the UK that I have, where then you distribute these fresh fruits and vegetables and they don't know what they are or they don't know how to cook them. Or if they do cook them, they're frying them, they're not actually baking them or doing it in a more nutritious way. So it defeats the whole purpose of distributing all of these things. And so I told her, I was like, let's back up into ideation. And so that was the core of what social entrepreneurs were trying to do is, or fall in love with the solution, but fall in love with the problem. And, and go and speak to the people. So she ultimately, before she started this, went to talk to the folks in the community and found out what their needs were, found out what their pain points were, and then she co-created the solution alongside them. Much less paternalistic, much more likely to be sustainable. I was in the third wave, so I was taught by people in the first wave. There were a whole lot of nonprofits that got started in the second wave. I was in the third wave, and now I'm teaching the fourth wave of social entrepreneurs. We were much more practical. And so we were like, great that you want to accomplish this, but how do you actually go about doing it? Um, and what are the practical ways that I can give anybody on the street kind of a cookbook, so to speak, of how to actually do this? I worked in the nonprofit space and I felt like there were way too many academics tell, you know, speaking down to nonprofits or the social folks and saying, here's how you should do it. Yet they had very little experience in how hard change actually is. And they didn't understand kind of the nuances of the work, you know, how hard behavior changes, how hard it is to go into a community um, and try to, you know, seek help. So Social Alchemy was born um, really from a conversation I had with um, a number of different nonprofits over time where they would have this kernel of a good idea. And I was like, how do I get them to go back and validate, is that idea even a good idea? Is that idea sustainable? And then once they do then create the idea, how do they keep measuring it so that they keep the idea fresh and interesting and relevant? Because you know times change and sometimes things work and sometimes they don't. And then once that idea is relevant and fresh and it's going really well, then how do they take it to scale? They do it in all neighborhoods in their community, not just one neighborhood. Or how do they take it to neighborhoods you know, in another state? You know, we've made many more ideas viable, we've made many more ideas feasible, and many more ideas have gone to scale because they followed this approach. Uh, Paula Coelho says in the actual The Alchemist is that it's about the journey. You know, sometimes it's about the end, but it's also about the journey. And so I think it also focuses on this idea of continuous improvement. Yeah. Um, and you know, even if you don't hit gold at the end, you still have learned a lot in the process.
you also talk about the merger of professional and personal identities. And I'm interested to know um, more about what that looks like, what change making looks like in your personal life, in your day to day life as well. This is one of the things that I talk about in my TED talk, you know, that everybody's a change maker. Um, and I think if you talk to people who know me, whether it's professionally or personally or even privately, like I'm a change maker. So this weekend, you know, it's Easter weekend and my family can't get together. And so I think everybody in the family was like, well, so what do we do? And so I've always been the one in the family is of saying, okay, like we're going to make the best of this situation. Um, so we did a Jeopardy, Jeopardy version, you know, where my parents came up questions for Jeopardy and we had each of the different families be kind of the the contestant um, and everybody loved it and so I would say even in my family I'm the one coming up with inventive ways that we don't let challenges get in our way it drives some people crazy actually <laughs> um, because I'm constantly in motion um, but I, I find it you know if I'm not constantly in motion I don't feel like I'm myself so in all of that, what does slowing down and um, what does self-care look like for you? So I go to an ashram like every year, right around New Year's. And sometimes I do it during the summer. It just really depends on kind of where I am and how much time I have. At least in the summer, I'll go someplace. You know, so one, one, one year I went to Southeast Asia and did a very similar kind of exercise. And so about three years ago, I made the decision that I was no longer going to use the word busy. Um, and it was mm -hmm. a little bit that word had changed definitions without society realizing it. So you know, 20 years ago, when you said you were busy, people didn't take it personally. They were just like, oh, at this moment in time, the person is busy, but I will try back. You know, like a telephone would be busy. You know, back in the old days, you, you know, the phone would, would be busy, but you'd call that person back. You wouldn't assume they were always busy. Now I feel like we have changed the definition when we say someone's busy, people oftentimes won't try them again. You know, they won't interface, they won't try to connect with that person because we have put kind of a, a word like too busy in front of it. I love unstructured time. And so what I will do is have days where I have completely unstructured time and I'm not busy at all. And so essentially there isn't a to-do list, there isn't anything that I have to do, um, and then I, it's everything that I choose to do. Like I choose to go for a walk or I choose to call a friend um, or I choose to go to a movie or I choose to read a book and whatever I do that day is okay because that's, as my grandmother would say, that's where the spirit moved me. You know, like I was moved in that direction. So self-care that day could be that I interact with a lot of people, but self-care could also mean that I go meditate, you know, I get caught up on something that I've been wanting to read or a movie that I've been wanting to watch. Um, but I, but I think the main thing I try hard not to do is not judge myself at the end of that day, you know, and say, was I productive or was I not? Because the whole point was that I was supposed to do whatever I felt like doing that day. Um, so to me, I have found over time as I've been doing more and more of that, that my favorite days are my unstructured days. I don't think we as humans do well when we're forced to do things. And what I've found is those unstructured days, I'm actually more productive because the minute I put the noose on of a to-do list or I have to do this at three and I have to do this at seven and I'm gonna, you know, I feel, you know, like I don't have choice. Um, so anyway, it's just been something I've done. Now, keep in mind, I can't do that during the week when I'm usually in the office because I have to schedule meetings with people at a certain yes. time. Um, 
And, but I try really hard to be in flow as much as I possibly can and have a good balance between forced productivity and just kind of this flow and kind of just going with the, the, my natural inclinations. It's interesting because in a way I feel the opposite could be said for me. That actually when I started to explore um, things like planners and uh, to-do lists and stuff like that, um, they opened up what I found that I was able to do with my time more because um, I think the way my mental health presents, I'll often get bogged down doing nothing and sometimes that's um, what my body and mind needs and I think I'm trying to get better at giving myself that. But when that's not what I need, yet it's an easy space for myself to, to be in, um, finding ways out of that and that being quite a, an, an empowering thing. But I think also the, the fine line for me is when I don't achieve everything that I have on that to-do list or or anything like that, I'm not being too hard on myself um, because it's very easy for, for myself to see that as a, as a failure of a day um, as a result. And I think that flows in to an interesting thing with failure as a wider sense that if we're worried about kind of failing on the on the small relatively insignificant things you know what am I doing on a Saturday with my time I think that flows into worrying about what am I doing within my work as well um to that that might risk failure on on the bigger sense I, I agree that's one of the reasons why I call um failure the social sector's f-word mm. Just we just don't talk about it, and 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 it was it was really obvious to me when I went to business school because when I was around people who were in companies, they talked about failure all the time. You know, that's the whole nature of, of business school is you read a case and you find out what the company actually did, and most of the time they failed at whatever their idea was. Um, and even entrepreneurs, if you talk to like venture capitalists, they want um, entrepreneurs. They want to fund entrepreneurs who failed before. Because they say when you fail, that you actually learn a whole lot more. Um, and, and I tell my students that too. I was like, if you haven't failed, then you haven't been trying hard enough. Um, you haven't been putting yourself out there. But yeah. I think in the social sector and to the point that you made earlier, I think that people who are in this first response kind of helper mindset, you know, so they're a social worker, they're an EMT, they're a police officer, they're in city government. Like you don't want to admit that you failed at something because the, the failure is, is, is at a higher or greater level. Mm -hmm. So if a company fails at a product, it's no big deal. Like, yep. you know, people just don't use that product anymore. It gets on the clearance aisles and you know, that's it. Um, they may lose some money, but the risk isn't very high. But when you fail as a, as a community or you fail as a city or you fail as a, a nonprofit, you know, lives are on the line. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why the F word of failure isn't something that's mentioned. Um, and I think part of it is we, what that does to us though, is it means that we don't fail early and fail cheaply. Like we fail really, really big in the social sector, sector when we don't, we don't do it. And what I tell my students is, is the first phase of failure is you merely made a mistake. Um, and when you make a mistake, it's super easy to correct it. But once you keep making that mistake over and over again, and then you hide that mistake, like that's when it becomes a big deal. Um, and that's when it becomes kind of um, toxic to you as an organization and you as a community. And so I think that's one thing I would argue that local government and uh, social sector organizations can learn from for profits is just getting rid of that fear of failure. I think it's perfectly fine for people to, to say, 
You know, we tried something and it didn't work and that's okay, but here's what we learned from it. Um, so I oftentimes will coach people in my classes about using a different word than failure. Um, so uh, one of the examples that I have when I was working at the American Heart Association and I was working with a, a cross-functional team and they would be hesitant to come to me when, when they made a mistake, you know, when something happened. And so we didn't call it a mistake. We didn't call it failure. We called it a skip in the CD. You know, and this was 10 years ago when you'd be driving down the road and all of a sudden there was a skip in the CD that you had in your car or you're listening to it, you know, on your, uh, you know, in your little headphones and everything. And there was no, like, no one was ever responsible for the skip in the CD. Like you had no idea why it came up. Um, and so they come to me and say, hey, Suzanne, I had a skip in the CD. And I'd be like, okay, what happened? Like, what are we going to do about it? Um, and so I think it could also just be the connection to that word. Like we need to think of a different word so that people feel more comfortable coming to leadership as quickly as possible so that a mistake doesn't turn into a failure and doesn't turn into a toxic situation. Something that runs through all of this is linguistics and how limited our vocabulary is at exploring and understanding and conveying nuance and meaning. Um, for instance, when it comes to different forms of intelligence, um, you, you've previously talked about the difference between IQ, EQ and SQ and how they open up at this understanding of, of skills. Um, I'd be interested to hear more about those. So you've got you know, IQ, which is typically kind of intellectual quotient, you know, so to what degree are you, um, you know, if you were to take an IQ test, you know, what would that be? Uh, it typically is, you know, how much learning you have. It typically is influenced also by your experience, you know, and how much knowledge have you been picking up along the way. Uh, it also really looks at how you look at the world. You know, are you analytical? So people who are analytical tend to do better on IQ tests. It doesn't mean that they're smarter. Um, I'm a big believer in multiple intelligences. Then the next one is emotional quotient, which people who are artistic, people who are creative typically do really well. And it's how we human interface with others. You know, so to what degree can we empathize with somebody? What are, how good are our listening skills? Uh, and then SQ is system quotient. Um, and so you can think about it in terms of to what degree do you see the big picture? Um, and we're still working on our article, um, and that's probably one of the things I'm going to do in my downtime of like really defining what SQ is. IQ is something that people talk about a lot, and it's certainly a big fundamental aspect of the U.S.-based academic system. You know, so how do you build someone's IQ? I think EQ, we're learning over time that the, the vast majority of people who are more successful in, in the world of work have very high EQ. So they typically have a, a, a certain baseline of IQ, but, but the EQ is what makes you a good manager. It makes you kind of connected with people, you know, allows you to kind of be able to get things done and a high motivator. Um, and I noticed on your bookshelf that you have Peter Singe, uh, the Fifth Discipline Handbook. Um, and so it actually yeah. came... Yeah, it came as a result of me. Well, maybe you will now because this, yeah. is, this is key. So it came as a result of me working with him and also working with um, one of my professors at business school, Scott, Scott Rockert, and he taught me system modeling. And system modeling is one of the big elements in the fifth discipline. And there are five disciplines that, you know, basically he talks about in the book. 
And um, so I recognized, you know, through that course, but also through that thinking that, you know, I really was a system thinker. You know, I didn't just think about the micro, I thought about the macro and I could easily move back and forth between the two. So I call it helicoptering, you know, so what points can you look at the macro and then and look at the micro and like, okay, how does this impact this or, or impact that? And not everybody's really good at that. You know, not everybody's good at kind of helicoptering and seeing um, the future. And so it also has a little bit related to foresight um, and, and your ability to kind of say, you know, like right now under COVID, everybody's been going for walks, you know, so will walks continue post COVID, you know, and how are, how are things going to change as a result of the fact that now everybody's doing Zoom? You know, is that going to be a positive consequence or a negative consequence? Um, and so right now, most people are sitting in the moment of COVID, but there's a lot of people like me who are thinking, okay, post this moment, I'm calling it um, BC and AC, before COVID and after COVID. <laughs> so at an AC level, once we get through this crisis, like where is that going to leave us as, as a generation? I'm hoping it'll lead us to um, enhanced understanding of climate change because we'll have now had a clean climate for a certain time period. Um, and we'll see the impacts of the human impact on the climate just so dramatically. In fact, I just saw the newspaper article that the, the Los Angeles in the United States, they have the cleanest air they've had in over a century. Our issue around climate change, and this goes back to semantics, is less about is climate change happening and is it moving to the worse? And it's more about our human beings having a natural effect on the climate. And I everybody would agree that that is something we need to pay attention to you know but it's got caught up in the politics of is global warming happening do i believe in it you know is it going to be worse 100 years from now you know yes or no the truth is is most people can only really look at where they are right now and so so there's going to be a whole lot of interesting consequences both positive and negative associated with um you know after COVID, ac and so i think People who have foresight and they have SQ can really think about, okay, how is this going to change our systems? How is it going to change our healthcare system? How is it going to change people's views on climate change? Um, how is it going to change how people donate money to nonprofits? Like whatever situation you're in, how is it going to change, you know, all of those things? Um, I still think I'm trying to debate to myself of can you actually teach SQ or is it something people just instinctively have? Uh, like like mechanical quotient, like emotional quotient, there's certain things where I think you just have an ability to do it. I'm a big believer, though, that it's a muscle, that the more you exercise it, the better off you're going to be. Um, so I think it, it's got to be taught, but then it's got to be taught over time, and you've got to keep kind of in that mode. It's interesting, having worked in statutory services for, for 10 years, um, where... I've always felt that everyone's pushed to the line and, and overworked. Um, not only does that mean that there's little time to look at the macro, but also there's this idea of that's not how we do things here and that you're irresponsible um, for going down that line because it takes you away from the, the focus that your attention needs to be on, which is the work that you're doing here and now. Um, and, and that you're causing trouble as a result. Um, and that's something I've always really struggled with. It really has affected my identity as a change maker as a result of it. Oh, gosh. You know, um, I think everybody has self-doubt. But I think it's it's really about, for me, um, the small things, you know, the impact I have on my students, the impact I have on clients, you know, the impact I have when someone reads something. You know, I mean, who would have ever thought that you would be reading the article that I wrote 
and came, you know, this idea I came up with like eight, you know, seven or eight years ago. I mean, it wasn't, it was a long, a long time ago and I still use it. Um, but it, but it's, it's great when you have that ripple effect. And so writing to me has been just as much about clarifying my own thinking as it is about sharing it. Um, and so in that way, it's very self-satisfying because every time I, I write something, I'll read it and be like, okay, you know, I got my point across. This was interesting to read, you know, and hopefully this will be meaningful. And then I just put it out in the world, you know, just say, okay, this is, I've done the best that I can with it. Now it's an opportunity for someone else to take it and run with it and be influenced by it. Uh, so, but I do have those moments of self-doubt of, especially these days, um, you know, is, is it really, at what point do I, you know, shift gears and do something completely different? You know, should I run for office again? Because I feel like there's a dearth of really great policymakers out there, you know, making pragmatic choices. Because right now, I think the choices ahead are going to be so important. But yeah, I think also too, you know, do I want to move to some desert island and just write <laughs> and just spend time writing and, you know, working on uh, material and that's it you know, and live a, a, an existence. And, and I think this COVID experience has made me realize that I can't handle too much isolation. <laughs> yeah. I have to interact with people and, you know, not, and not just over Zoom, I have to interact with people kind of on a regular basis. Something we've darted around so far is the role that storytelling has in change making, in communicating an idea, in convincing and growing a social change movement and then growing it to scale. Um, Obviously, this is a core component of social impact architects, and I'm really interested to hear you tell or to say more about that. Well, I mean, I think stories is what makes the world go round. You know, if we look back as um, our very existence before there was the written word and before there was the spoken word, there was this storytelling element. Um, you know, people who puts, you know, drew on the walls of caves, um, people who sat around the fire, you know, and did hand gestures and grunted and, you know, so storytelling has been part of who we are. You know, it's a way that we bond. It's a way that we typically communicate. Um, and so it's an instinctive part of who we are. Um, and now if you look at the brain scans of individuals, when you tell a story, you know, so when I tell you a story about my family playing Jeopardy, or I tell you a story about an, a nonprofit that I worked with. So that girl that wanted to open up, um, you know, have a van, do fresh fruits and vegetables, people connect in a different way because they can actually walk in those people's shoes. Um, so when you hear someone kind of lecturing at you about IQ, SQ, EQ, for example, you know, it's kind of boring. You kind of heard it before. But when you start hearing a story about someone specifically using that or a story of the other person, your brain kind of lights up like a Christmas tree and attacks the issue in a different way. Um, and so I think even though data has become more important to us as a society, you know, I'm definitely not dismissing that because I'm a big believer in data, but to me, stories illuminate data better than anything else. Um, and so for me, I think stories have been part of who we are and stories, you know, are not just the ones that upon a time book. It's also comedians doing what they're doing. It's teachers, you know, the best teachers you've had are all storytellers, you know, so the people who I think dominantly do better in their professions are all the people who are really good at storytelling. Um, it's about knowing where that audience is, bringing them along, bringing them along for the journey, um, and then making it their story, you know, because the really good storytellers are not just at a transactional level. I'm going to tell you a story and you're going to listen. It's I'm going to bring you along for the journey and this is going to be our story. 
And so I think it's an element of who we are that is so, so, so important and is more than just marketing and it's more than just an elevator pitch, which is what I think we sometimes have condensed it down to. I think it's easy to theorize all this. I think it's useful to use two actual real world examples. Um, the first that come to mind are the Brexit referendum from a couple of years ago and the 2018 abortion referendum in Northern Ireland. Um, both obviously really um, divisive subjects um, with abortion in Ireland being a taboo subject for generations. Uh, the thing that was interesting is looking at how these two were run. Um, I was speaking to somebody involved in the um, in the abortion referendum campaign and she was saying, you know, we, we were telling a story. We weren't just looking at the statistics and we'll take the theoretical approach. We made it emotional. We made it personal. We were talking to people about their mothers, sisters, friends, partners. Uh, if you compare that to the Brexit um, referendum where um, the stay campaign was very much around the moralistic and statistical benefits rather than the emotional storytelling. That didn't really happen until post-vote where it was about the young people losing the the right to travel, a right to freedom of movement. Um, if we then translate that over to the results, Brexit was obviously a, a, a narrow loss, um, 48 to 51. Um, but interestingly, the, the Irish um, outcome, considering, as I said, about abortion being such a divisive subject, the campaign to withdraw the act in question was a 66%. They won by 66%. And that is remarkable to look at. Our um, most successful presidents, as far as telling um, the nation what they needed to hear, were storytellers. You know, So Reagan, FDR, I mean, we've had both sides of the aisle. And I think Trump uh, is a good example of someone who I think creates a really great narrative. You know, he had a great tagline, make America great again. Like, who is going to disagree with that? You know, I want to make America great again. Um, and so I think we found that the people who tend to be more successful um, when it comes to policy, to your point, are the ones who think about it in terms of the emotional element, you know, the storytelling side. Um, and we need both. You know, I, I don't think it has to be a choice. You know, I think it can be both and. Um, we don't live in an either or world. I mean, some people are going to be much more attracted to the rational argument and some people are going to be more attracted to the emotional argument and it could flip flop any given day. Um, so I, I'm a big believer in figuring out what the kernel of like the story is and then using it so that that way people can connect with that story. So taking all your experiences, all your work, um, what made you take that jump and throw your hat into the political ring? Um, frustratingly, it seems to me that, that our society sees politics as this thing that you're, you're either into or you're really not. And that's a big thing that I want to look at tackling. Um, and so something that interests me is, is with your journey, if that was a, a quick like, light bulb moment or if that was more than lengthy transition. You know, I think it's just part of my DNA. Um, there was a politician here in, in the United States that basically said, you know, there's no cure for politics except embalming, embalming fluid. Um, so I think there's just people in the United States, particularly because we're such a politically motivated, you know, as a, at our very ethos. Um, and so I've just been politically motivated from, from very young. I mean, we couldn't come to the dinner table unless we'd read the newspaper and we knew what was going on, you know? And so I spent time, you know, 
debating these things. I was a debater in high school. You know, I did Model UN. I did pretty much everything you possibly could. I went to two national conventions and was just very engaged in what was going on in politics. So as far as me actually running for office, it actually go, it came down to a story. There was a local school district race uh, in my area, and I wasn't considering running at all. And um, there was, you know, a guy that I knew pretty well had stepped up and said he was going to do this. And I had, at the same time, been invited to a local high school to go on a tour and had been a friend of mine who for a while had said, come down and do this. And it was getting close to the holidays. And, you know, I went to this high school and they had all these really good collegiate flags all over the place, including my own Duke and UT. And, you know, I was like this, you know, I walked into the school and, you know, there was part of me that was very enthusiastic. But then when I sat down with the principal and some of the kids in that school, I found out in their graduating class, only one went on to college. Wow. And I, it was almost as if I was like, I just couldn't understand a world in which that was okay to exist. And keep in mind, I'm a big fan of trade schools. They get they're incredibly important, but here they're, you know, they were touting all these colleges as I was walking in. And, you know, only one of those kids was going to aspire to going to one of those colleges that the flags represented. And the school was also pretty run down. Um, you know, it wasn't bright. It wasn't cheery. There was a whole lot of maintenance issues. Like I wouldn't want to walk into that school every single day um, as a student. Like it just wasn't a place that inspired, you know, sparked anything in me. And so I walked out of that school and, and basically, you know, burst out crying in my car because I was like, how is this possible only a couple of minutes away from my house? How is this possible for someone to go to high school like this? And um, did a lot of soul searching, talked to a lot of friends, talked to other politicians and ultimately decided to run for office in that case. Um, and part of the issue that we have in, D in Dallas is um, uh, issues of segregation. Um, and issues of gentrification, uh, where we have places in our community where the high schools are great. There's a, you know, pretty much every kid that goes there is going on to college. And then we have, you know, high schools like the one I mentioned. And so I think going back to the example of storytelling, even though I kind of knew that that probably existed when I actually saw it and saw the students and saw that these students, you know, were just as bright had just as much potential, um, and we just weren't equipping them the way we should as a community. Um, I think that was the part where my heart sank. Um, and keep in mind, I, I, I'm a product of two principals. You know, both of my parents were school administrators and teachers. So I was heavily influenced by the education system, not only as a student, but also with my parents both being principals. So when I saw that, I could not run. Like it was just a compulsion in me that I, I'm like, I've got to go out and tell people the story and I've got to tell them that we can do better um, and use every ounce of talent and energy and um, opportunity that I had been given with the parents that I had, the zip code I was raised in, um, the opportunities that I had been granted. Um, I needed to use that for the benefit of those kids. And so that, that was the whole reason why I ran the first time. Um, I didn't win, I came really close, but I didn't win that time. And then the second time I ran for a state board of education and came really, really close. Um, and that time, I think it was the same compulsion that I really wanted kids to have the same education I did. And I saw test scores continuing to go down. I saw lots of kids with high potential not getting the kind of teachers they deserved. 
teachers not being respected the way I felt like they should, um, us getting mired into the politics of everything and not being about kids. Um, and I just felt like I could be a voice for a better path forward. Um, and so I could better tell the story, better show the statistics, um, be someone who could bridge divides. Uh, and so I decided I was going to run for office to see if that was possible. So I come from a multicultural town and um, I went to one of the only public secondary schools in that town. Um, and that definitely gave me a, a level of understanding um, in relation to different experiences and different need. But that quite significantly grew as I entered into kind of my working life and I've worked in you know within a city communities and stuff and through all throughout this whole thing something I've always struggled with is the privilege that comes from um from not knowing or at least not fully understanding the problems in depth soon enough um and I'm interested if this is something that's that's come up um for you and how, how that has affected your practice you know, I, I knew that the issues existed. I think it wasn't until it was just right in my face that I, I think realized I had to run for office. But so I was a little bit like you, you know, and that I had been, I think all of us can become numb to the statistics, yep. you know, and go, go back to our place and, you know, make dinner and watch a little bit of TV and the next day starts over again. And you forget that there's some people who, you know, don't have Wi-Fi, you know, don't have access to, you know, all the we have access to. So I think that's just a common thing is we get caught in our own little world. The only antidote I know is that you have to walk in other people's shoes. And one of the reasons why as a social entrepreneur, one of the main elements of social entrepreneurship is you have to study the problem. Um, and I tell my students, I'm like, if you're not asking the people you're serving about their problem or the problem, then you are the problem. Um, and I think part of our job as social entrepreneurs is to walk in people's shoes. And so it's one of the reasons why, you know, when I'm going through social alchemy, when you're looking at insights, you have to go spend time in those communities. Um, you know, so when I was in South, South Africa, I couldn't go to South Africa without staying in Soweto. Like I had to go live in Soweto for a couple of days to see what it was like. Not just when, you know, it was during the day, but how, what did it feel like at night? Like, how did I feel, you know, and, and you definitely feel the intensity of the criminal activity or the lack of, lack of safety as a result. And so I think you have to put yourself as a social entrepreneur in those circumstances so that you can see what it's really like. Um, so how that manifests for me, you know, during the political campaign, but even today, I really encourage people who have privilege whatever amount of privilege they have to go spend time walking in the shoes of those people. And that could manifest by being a big brother, big sister, you know, so that you can actually deeply connect with someone. It means you could also go on a bus tour, you know, and not just, you know, from eight to five, but from five to eight, you know, so you can see what it's like, you know, at night. Um, so I've encouraged people to go on ride alongs with police officers. Um, having conversations with people, you know, who've been victims of child abuse, victims of domestic violence, the more we hear those stories, I call them mission moments, the more you can put yourself in the shoes of other people and recognize, no, those people aren't lazy, or they didn't ask for it, or they didn't, you know, um, this, this kid is just as bright as my kid, you know, um, it, it gives, it breaks down those walls and breaks down those barriers. Um, so, I think the more you can make yourself of that community and you 
recognize that um, and recognize the difference. Um, I'm convinced that a human being who goes into that kind of situation and immerses themselves, they will come out uh, um, changed. Um, another great one that I love, and I don't know if you guys have done this before, but there's also this thing called the poverty simulation. It, it basically is a simulation of you walking in poverty. So essentially we have a, a, a local church who actually has dedicated its top floor to the poverty simulation and has like a mock jail and a mock classroom. And as soon as you go into the poverty simulation, you get a card with how much money you have, what your profession is, what the issues are that you have, and you play out that poverty simulation as that person. And you know, you, you get to somewhat experience the shame of your kid coming to you and you having $45 in your checking account and the kid wants a new backpack or wants new shoes and your paycheck isn't coming in for two weeks and you're like, I have to use that $45 for food or I have to go ask the church for food so that I can get those shoes. Um, and so you get a sense of the choices people in poverty or the choices that people make and how hard they really are. I think it would be neglectful to not point out that if we enter into these spaces, we're also um, able to leave them and that in itself is a privilege. Um, with that said, something I find really interesting about your work and the stuff that you've shared there, not even your work, but your personal choices, is they're not just about those kind of short in and out experiences which so many power players use. They're about building those longer lasting relationships with the places and the people. Um, a really good example that you shared was um, Big Brother, Big Sister. That's about walking alongside communities and people not not inherently trying to change them um and it makes me think about as, as i build the curated content of compassionate troublemaking um i'm trying to be more effective in in bringing authentic voices together um, on different issues if we look within the u.s political space um organizations like new congress are, are looking to do the same um and i think politics is often where a lot of change can come shouldn't necessarily have to be that way but how I'm always interested in how we use those spaces. So, so I'm wondering, out of your experiences, what are the blocks um, into authentic voices within communities, uh, within politics, and are they are they surmountable? Who you associate yourself with then is the story that people tell about you. Yeah. Um, and so they're building a story about you and whether or not they can vote for you. And so it ends up putting the voter in kind of a position of power in a lot of ways. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I think campaigning is so important because I think it really forces you to go out there and do your due diligence and do your research. Um, but it's also a pressure test of how do you deal with differing opinion? How do you deal with disagreement? How do you deal with the grueling pace of running for office? Because when you get into office, you're going to have some of those similar things. And so for me, um, you know, I, I jokingly said this to people, although I was very, it was very true. After I ran, I said, you know, you pretty much have to have one of the three to be successful in United States politics. One, you have to be a man. Two, you have to have money, basically. Um, so that means that, you know, you have access to money because in general, you can't, you know, in the United States, a lot of the positions that we have, particularly at lower levels of government, you don't get paid for. And so most people can't not have a job. You know, they have to have some way to support themselves. So you either have to have a spouse or a family who has a lot of money and is willing to support you running for office. Um, and then the, the last thing is you have to have position. 
Like you have to know people in the community. You have to have a group of people who are willing to support you. Now that I've run for office, you know, it's easy for people to think that it's a really glamorous thing to do, but it's actually incredibly hard. Um, I tell everybody that it is the hardest pressure test I've ever had because you're, you know, you're doing your day job, but then you also have this, you know, running for office. There's everybody feels like when you run for office, they can be critical of you. So then the niceness between human beings just goes away. Um, and then also too, once you claim a party, so in one case I was partyless and the other one I had a party, they instantly either like you or they don't like you. It makes it that much harder for you to be successful, you know, and just be, you know, an average person because you have to go out and get a job. And if you're an average person, it's hard for you to build a network because you know, you're working every day. You're not able to, you know, kind of run in political circles. Um, and that in and of itself is a hobby, you know, to keep up with everything that's going on in politics. And then, you know, I think there's definitely a disadvantage um, for being a female because not only because you have all these other things that go on, there's just natural biases that people have um, about if you're a female, then these are the issues you care about. Or if you're a female, you have to be attractive. Or if you're a female, then this is, this is who you are. Um, and that means that it's, one step removed, sometimes three step removed from the average person actually being able to do it. Um, and so I think that's unfortunate. Um, I wish that we had um, an opportunity for anybody to run for office and it just be a all about ideas, like who has the best ideas. So I think we still have a lot of work to do in the United States as far as making sure that anybody can run for office and anybody can be successful because I, I worry that we've gotten away from that. You know, I thought being in the middle was the way to go because there's more moderates there than anything else. But really, the people who run the parties tend to be much more progressive or much more conservative. You know, so, so, so yeah, so people have asked me all the time, am I going to run again? And I'm like, you know what, I don't think I can win. Like, I don't think there's enough people like me that uh, go out and vote and feel really strongly about their position. Um, now, that could change. You know, from my perspective, what we really should be talking about, which is what are the right policies to move our nations forward? What kind of leaders do we want to be leading? What kind of character do we want them to have? What kind of decisions do we need them to be to be made? Um, what you know, what are the what does the future workforce look like, and are we building an education system to support them? I just think we get caught up in the politics of it all, and unfortunately, I think it's gotten us away from true true. Um, policy, which I think is, is really a, a lost art now. Um, I think our founding fathers, the United States founding fathers, would be very disappointed with the level of, at the level at which we're debating things. So we've talked a fair bit about the delicacies and nuances of being human. Um, I don't think that's ever been probably more true than right now in COVID. I, I'm interested in how you see change-making practices um, taking us forward, both through this pandemic and also beyond that as well? Um, I think you've got to go local. I've always believed that all politics is local. And I think that people oftentimes get caught up in kind of all this kind of craziness up here. But the reality is right here, right at your doorstep, you know, right across the street, right in your neighborhood, there are people needing help. You know, um, and so I think if you can make things very personal, I think it can be, everybody agrees, you know, that those are all things that we need to deal with. And so I think that's probably where I would start first is, you know, what, what do you want to do? 
you know, do you want to start a community garden? Uh, do you want to, um, you know, do sidewalk art, you know, so as people go on walks, they can get an inspirational message while they're going on their walk, you know, to what degree can you make a difference in the lives of an elderly person who's down the street and maybe doesn't have access to getting groceries, you know, to what degree is there a mom who just needs a break. And so you can watch your kids outdoors while they're hanging out while she takes a shower, you know, from six feet distance, you know, so what can you do to improve the lives of the people around you? Um, and I think that the research suggests that it's better for our mental health. Um, I think that there's research that basically says that now we're no longer in the search for happiness, that actually the people who have purpose in their lives or have happiness. Um, and I also think that one thing that COVID will do is I think we'll, we'll pay attention less to things in consumerism. You know, I think where we've been spending our time, we've been spending our time with each other, the people who care about us the most. We've been isolating with the people who we care about the most. You know, we've been eating dinner together. We've been, you know, going back to the old room of, of school, you know, our parents teaching us everything. So I'm hoping those ideals kind of stay strong and that we continue to take the best of what that isolation has done. Um, and then also kind of, it's to me, there's also an opportunity for a reckoning for us to say, where did we go too far? You know, we probably cared too much about what kind of car I drove or, um, you know, what clothes I was wearing and, and you know, uh, keeping up with everybody else in the neighborhood as far as, you know, what I wore and what I drove and what job I had and caring more about, is that person alive? Are they happy? You know, is there a way that I could help them be happier? Um, is there a way I can make them healthier? Um, so I'm hoping that we move towards that. And so I think change makers are needed more now than ever. And if we had a change maker on every block, we wouldn't be where we are right now. Because then those little, those little ripple effects, um, I call it electricity, because we do know that they're the quickest thing to try to, um, to transmit is, is that pay it forward mindset. You know, it's, it's no surprise that Starbucks, you know, when the first person in the line says, I will pay for the next person, they get a chain reaction of people that continue to give. And so I think change makers create that chain reaction as well. You can go online right now and decide to be a mentor for Big Brothers Big Sisters. You can go online right now, find your favorite charity and donate. You can go online right now and say, I'm going to be on the board of directors for an environmental group because I believe in climate change. So that's the beauty that this like moment is giving us. And so I think change makers have a real opportunity to elevate their game, elevate the game of their neighborhood and have kind of that chain reaction effect we were talking about. You can see a lot of the similarities between um, people and communities there. Eh? Um it's easy to it's easy to not feel that special as a result but actually there's a lot of strength in just the sharedness of experiences well and one of the things i teach in my class that is a thread that i think we've been talking about is being a change maker doesn't necessarily mean you're the person out front and center um, i teach in my class that really you're it's only appropriate for you to lead probably 20 percent of the time you know, the leader needs to be the most equipped person, the person who has availability of time, you know, and then, but the other 80% of the time you should be following. Um, you know, and it's one of the reasons why when you reached out, I was like, of course, I'm going to do the podcast. I think this is great. I want to follow his movement just as much as he's following mine, you know, and it's this idea that we don't always have to be leaders. You know, we can also follow other people's great ideas and those people who are leaders need followers. They need armies behind them saying, this is a good idea. Um, people need to be paying attention to it. 
Um, and I think we've gotten a little bit egotistical in our lives. And I think sometimes social entrepreneurs fall victim to this too, of like, I'm going to go lead something. And that means I need to lead at church. I need to lead at my job. I need to lead in my family. I need to lead in this. And I'm just a leader. Well, one, that's not very healthy. And two, it doesn't give other people the opportunity to lead. It also isn't, it's not going to build a system that is supportive of multiple leaders leading in their different categories. So I'm very selective about the stuff I choose to lead in. You know, I, I go into a room and say, am I the best person in this room to lead? Um, and if not, then I become the best follower in that room. You know, I make sure that I'm paying attention, making sure that I follow up on emails. Um, and then when I'm leading, I make sure I'm the best leader in the room. You know, that I'm actually the one, you know, I don't fall short on anything that I'm being asked to do. I think it's also really useful to note that privilege and power don't only occur within the political sphere i think it's very very easy to see that as the home of power but actually like within organizations within communities uh within moralistic spaces you know even within change maker communities i have met so many change makers who like to put forward this idea of them being um you know the open ones and the ones bringing about effective change and 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 all the good things but if you then look at their practice it doesn't follow through with what they're saying always we all have to recognize we do have power and privilege and we need to use it um i recall there's a good friend of mine sala bukadum um who is a male and he's also one of the social entrepreneurs in my community and so he made a promise like three or four years ago to himself that whenever he got invited to be on a panel or got invited to something, he would look at the roster first to make sure it was diverse. Um, and there are a lot of male social entrepreneurs. There are not a lot of uh, female social entrepreneurs. And there are obviously a lot of Caucasian social entrepreneurs and not a lot of, you know, non-Caucasian social entrepreneurs. And so, and there's also, you know, age, ages stuff too. You know, most social entrepreneurs are in their thirties and forties, very few are in their, you know, 60s and 20s, you know, um, so he, I, I learned this through him that now I ask, now I'm at a point of power and privilege. Um, I've recognized that I can actually go, you know, ask that same question and just say, I will choose to participate or not, depending on how diverse your actual group is. Um, and if there isn't diversity in the room, like, so there's been some examples of where I've been invited to kind of a White House gathering on social enterprise and I get to the room and there aren't diverse voices, I'm one of the first people that points that out and just say, you know, in a very nice way, you know, it's the whole idea behind compassionate troublemaking, which is what I love about what you're doing, is that, you know, you can insert yourself, you know, and you can be the troublemaker, but you can do it in a way that people be open about it. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, I have adopted Sala's view. And so I have now, um, you know, made sure that anytime I moderate a panel, anytime I actually am on a panel, I'll ask, you know, who else have you been asking? Um, and uh, I found that when I say to them, oh, you need more diversity, they'll be like, well, I just don't know anybody. And so then it, so to me, it's not that they don't want to be diverse. So it also helps me recognize that it's not that they're not compassionate, they just don't have the network yeah. that they, their world is not as big as my world where I have so many people I hang out with. It's, it's a multicultural kind of oasis for me. They may not, maybe don't live in that oasis. So I get an opportunity to invite them to learn about other people who are in my community that are diverse, 
and that could be on the panel and are equally articulate. And, and that does lead us I mean, sometimes to not getting asked as much to being on panels. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. So me as an anxious extrovert, I have this thing called the Tada personality. Um, it can link in a bit with uh, with imposter syndrome of sorts, where um, I'm trying to trying to show my worth or my validity. Um, and in situations like this, it can feel a bit like shooting myself in the foot. You know, I can be totally okay with the idea of um, taking on that follower role. And actually, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it because I really like seeing other people stepping in and stepping up. But when there's things like the extended silences and, and when there's a, a void of facilitation, I find I step in often because the silence raises my anxiety. And I've always found that a really tricky dynamic, which kind of takes me away from the things we're talking about there. I guess it links in a lot with the ongoing reflection and professional development, as you say. Well, a couple of thoughts on that, because I think that, first of all, I love the fact that you know that about yourself. I mean, you're like ahead above most people because only like 1% of the population is that aware of this imbalance you have, you know, the need, the, what you really want versus how you show up. Um, I think I kind of fell into that pattern very easily too, um, a little bit different, but I, I think in the same pattern. And I think part of what helped me there is before I go into meetings or before I go into situations, I visualize what I want that experience to look like, you know, and I kind of think about what are, what are the various scenarios that could happen? You know, I could go in and there could be a leadership void. Do I fill that leadership void? You know, is that something I'm even interested in? Because I, I would oftentimes, um, fall into that leadership void and not even be interested in the issue, but be like, there's a leadership void here. Uh, so I'm going to fill it, you know, because there's a need. Well, just because there's a need doesn't mean I love it. You know, and I teach in my uh, classes, Venn diagram of what are you the most passionate about? What are you the best at? What does the world need? And what can you make money on? And so I deeply think about those first two, which is what am I passionate about? And um, also what am I best at? Because I'm passionate about some things that I'm not the best at. And I'm really good at stuff that I'm not passionate about. You know, I can lead pretty much anything, but it doesn't mean I'm passionate about it. All I've done is just be very intentional about what I can say yes to. I say no more than I say yes. Um, and oftentimes I'll delay a yes, you know, to make sure it truly is a yes. yes. It's not my ego saying yes first because they asked me or because it was a void. Um, so then I'll say, you know what? I need to look at my other obligations and I'll get back to you. So with all of this conversation, I'm really interested to know um, what the high points of your career and even your personal life are, but also I'd, I'd previously written down what the um, difficulties are, what the failures are, um, but actually I really like what you were saying earlier about the CD skips. Uh, so what have the, the major CD skips that come to mind? What have they been? I have said from the very beginning, so for my 18th birthday, I became a big sister for Big Brothers Big Sisters. And, uh, you know, she is no longer little anymore, but we still are in each other's lives. You know, so I was um, a matron of honor at her wedding. Um, you know, she has been involved in my life. You know, I am aunt to her daughter, you know, just as if we were related to one another. I would say that was probably one of my biggest successes. You know, I think anytime you get outside of yourself, particularly at 18, when you're kind of all consumed by self. <laughs> There's a lesson to be learned there. Um, and honestly, I don't know what motivated me to do that at the time. I just thought I had a really good family myself and I wanted to share that. You know, I think it was as simple as that. 
So I have a number of students who have gone out and done amazing things. And uh, so that's also something that I, I relish, you know, anytime they reach out to me and tell me what they're up to. Uh, as far as failure is concerned, there are too many to, to list. Um, I, I think that uh, most of my failure comes from me in, um, underestimating myself, you know, walking into a room and kind of seeing everybody else in the room and just assuming that you're kind of the low person on the totem pole. I was fortunate that I had parents who always felt like my opinion was really important. So I think I have that less so than most women. Um, but there are definitely some moments where <clears throat> I look back and I'm like, why didn't I run for office beforehand? Why did I let that person intimidate me? Or why did I take that no and not do anything about it? So one of the things I teach in my class is that no doesn't mean no, that no is just a bargaining position. And when someone gets, tells you no, you need to ask for something else. You know, so I wish I'd known that in my 20s. Like, you know, I, I didn't know that. I assumed when people said no, no was no. And so I think my failures, um, I have made some silver lining out of all of them. And that's part of the reason why I teach. I consistently share with them all the mistakes that I made and said, don't make this mistake. Don't take the first job that's offered to you. Take the risk, you know, ask that person out or, you know, um, apply for that job. Or, you know, the worst that people can do is say no to you. Like, you know, on your deathbed, you're, you're gonna be thinking about the things you didn't do, not the things you did do and failed at. I think I've tried to live my life as much that way as possible, but I felt, I felt guilty of that too. Like I've been trying to write this book for the last four years. And so it's still not written. And it's, it's about me not finding the time because I have an infinite amount of time. I have the same amount of time everybody else has. It's more about me putting my work out there and letting it, letting it ride, you know, yeah. being like I would want it to be or no one pays attention to it. And I've just wasted all that time. I mean, I, I, that's what I labor with in my own head. So the Compassionate Troublemaking Manifesto guides much of our work. And as I'm looking at branching out and having these different conversations with people, something that really excites and interests me is finding what Compassionate Troublemaking as an idea means to different people and where they can take it. So um, what does it mean to you? So it's funny, like when people ask me how I'm doing, I typically will jokingly, instead of saying I'm busy, because of course, you know, I don't say I'm busy. I say I'm, I'm staying out of trouble. <laughs> um, so, so that's why it resonated with me because I've always liked saying that, you know, because I do think there's this element of danger in the work that we do. And there's also this element of people wanting to know what I do. Cause I think there is a little bit of people who look at me and they're like, you're a do-gooder, you know? And so that yeah. seems very non-troublemaking, you know, but the reality of the way in which I do good is it does shift people's paradigms and make people uncomfortable every once in a while. And so that's why I loved, you know, that you actually have compassionate troublemaking. I'm like, you know, maybe that's, that's a really better way to put it. When I look at making the unexplored your home, I think that's one of the things that keeps me awake is that I am always looking at the unknown. Like I love learning. I'm very curious. I love travel. So that one, I think it comes close to me. Storytelling, you know, I have a whole class on storytelling. So storytelling is something that, you know, I'm constantly trying to think about and think about how we do it better. I think the one that I probably am the most challenged by, um, because I love putting, you know, I, I'm a, definitely a thorn in the side of the status quo. I mean, that's the very nature of being a social entrepreneur. It's this idea of radical kindness. I, I love that idea of, you know, really... Um, pushing the envelope and this whole, I mean, to me, it encapsulates compassionate troublemaking. Like, how do you do it in a kind way? Because I do think that for me, I'm such a direct person 
that sometimes, you know, I'm not always thinking about it from another person's view. So I, I, this is definitely something I'm focused on is this whole idea of radical kindness. And I think partly to other people, but also to myself, you know, I think giving myself compassion and grace in the moments, because I think I'm very, I'm not only tough on myself, I'm tough on other people. And so I think those, that's probably the one that I struggle with the most. I think it's really common to struggle with it. The idea of radical kindness as part of the manifesto came from a place where I was struggling with it. I was campaigning with the political left in the UK and came under fire for taking a more compassionate approach to the opposition. And I, um, you know, in, in my struggle, I had to translate why I believed that. And that led to, uh, that led to a big part behind the manifesto. Final question. So, um, friend of the podcast, Math Potts, recently framed compassionate troublemaking and the platform we're creating as uh, like in Cheers, a bar where everyone knows your name. And I'm interested, where in this fictional or real, depending on your approach, bar, where would we find you? Even back in high school, like I would be in the middle of a table with, with people having drinks and we'd be having an intense conversation about something. You know, and it could be about the relationships we're in and why people are acting the way they do and, you know, maybe providing therapy for each other. It could be about politics, you know, and should we have a flat tax? Should we not have a flat tax? And that's probably where I would be is kind of in the center of one of those conversations. I love, like, even this conversation, I could see two other people and us going on for a lot longer at the <laughs> talking about you know, here's my experience and here's what I call it. And here's what I did. And, you know, when that happened to me, and I think that's, that's where I would be is, you know, being at a table with a bunch of other like-minded misfits, you know, people who are open, people who are curious, people have different life experiences. Like, I don't really like people who are just like me. I find that very boring. Um, so someone who's just very different and getting their point of view. Beautiful. So to end on, where can people find you? We've got a website called socialimpactarchitects.com and changemakerinteractive.com. Uh, and you can take my online course on storytelling right now. Um, we're actually providing it during COVID times for $19. Uh, it's normally $199 uh, on storytelling. And so you'll get to see a little bit more about me. It's, we call it kind of a mini MBA marketing course, basically. Uh, and then I have a weekly blog called Social Trend Spotter, which you can subscribe to. You can also go back. We've been writing it for seven years. So you can go backwards and see how it's evolved over time. Um, there's also a really great search function in it. So if you want to search culture or social enterprise or, you know, SQ or EQ or how to get a job or, you know, social entrepreneurship, what does that mean? Um, all of that's in there in the blog. So we're completely open source. So you can take any of it and, and use it um, and build on it, you know, just like you built on social alchemy. I mean, there was stuff in your article when we reposted it that I was like, gosh, I didn't even think about that. That's actually a really good evolution of the point that I made. You can check out the TED Talk, even though it, we did it four years ago. I think it's probably even more relevant today because I think everybody wants to come out of COVID as a change maker. And then I have a bunch of stuff on Medium and a bunch of stuff in various um, journal articles. I do have an article coming out in Chronicle of Philanthropy about what's next for the social sector that I've been working on, and I'll send that your way too. Um, yeah, I do. I think it'll be equally applicable to the UK as it is to the United States. Lovely. That sounds fantastic. Um, thanks for giving us your time and energy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, a, it's really my honor because I, I love the conversation. I love that we're so far away from each other, yet we're so united in our belief system. And I think it just proves that the world is flat 
yep. um, and that friends, it's easy to, to have kinship and friendship with people. Uh, so as soon as I got your email, I was like, let me figure out how to fit this into my schedule and make it work time way, you know, so I appreciate you being patient with me and making sure that um, I was bringing my best self to this, but also that you and I had an opportunity to have a long conversation. So I know it's much later in the UK for you. So actually, I think I should be thanking you for staying up so late. Whew. Listen to uh, listen to that over, you know, a couple of weeks after recording. And I really enjoyed just, you know, Suzanne is such a fountain of knowledge and she's so warm and engaging and, and wants to share that knowledge and experience. And you don't, you know, a lot of people say they'll do that, but very few people will be willing to. Um, and so I, I greatly appreciate Suzanne's time and energy as I said um if you have a moment I'd go and check out any of her content because it is really top-notch you'll learn some stuff and and you'll you'll just feel included in all of her work um so yeah so I'm glad that you've joined us for for the third episode of compassionate troublemaking confessions of a troublemaker uh, next week I'm joined by Ewan Hilton from the well-being and mental health organization platform and we're going to talk a lot about uh, mental health in the time of covid uh, mental health outside of covid as well um, maybe how more trauma influenced practice can can lead a lot of our work and what leading a big organization um, can be like and not only that but also leading a big organization through some pretty significant um, organizational changes and identity changes and how that can play out so I'm really excited for that hope to to for you guys to join us there I'll talk to you then Tura.